one of the most arrogant statements to be found in the scriptures, the God King Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? It's a question that's been echoed down through the centuries. I was listening to uh, a news item just recently where some schools were complaining, or the parents were complaining, that uh, uh, children ought not to have to go to some kind of religious instruction. Who is this God that they should have to bow before him, as it were, each day? Why shouldn't they be in some other room or doing some other uh, more productive effort? Well, Moses had already anticipated difficulty with his own people. And he brought the matter to God when God commissioned him to speak to the captive Jews. So in Exodus 3 verse 13 we read, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers have sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? What shall I say to them? What is your name? What are you called? Who is the Lord? These are surely valid questions, as I've said right down even to the present time. And in answer to these questions, the next verse tells us that God introduces himself, first of all, as the I am that I am, the eternal one, the continually existing one, showing how he relates to them. And in verse 15, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob, thus showing how they relate to him. He is telling them that he has this intimate relationship with them, and he's given them, as it were, information concerning his power and that distribution of that power. And God further says that this latter name is his name forever, and is a memorial unto all generations. So although our needs may vary, our relationship to him is unchanging. He can never be any different. He is what he is. I am what I am. God never changes. In the book of Job, we find God rebuking Job's three comforters because they claim to be speaking for him. And God rejects the position that they take. He needs none to speak for him because he speaks for himself. I am that I am. So what does it mean then? God speaks for himself. What does God tell us about himself as we look through what is written in the scripture? Well obviously first of all he is the living God. The first commandment reveals a living active God the one who has brought his people out of the house of bondage. So he is a being who has some visible activity, as it were. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 tells us that God is never tired or weary. David writes of the God in Psalm 121, verse 4, who slumbers not nor sleeps. Samuel describes God as one who reacts the moment anyone touches his followers. And Hosea and Daniel similarly describe him. So God is attentive, determined, active in fulfilling his will. In other words, totally alive, totally committed, totally purposeful. We're also told that he is the holy God. 
Hosea records God's statement in Hosea 11 verse 9 where God says, I am the Holy One. And holiness is not something that God does. It is something that he is. It's one of the things, of course, that very much shows the difference between us as human beings as God. And you know when we were talking about love in the Sabbath school this morning, you know the difference between us and God as far as that is concerned is that God is love. Love is something that we do, something that we can have, but God is. And in this case, we see that holiness is not something that we have in that sense. It's not something that God does. It's something that he is. Therefore, anything that God touches, he therefore makes holy. And the radiance of his holiness sanctifies his people. But at the same time, his holiness opens before God an abyss that cannot be crossed by any creature. As he shows that love, as he shows that holiness, we see ourselves to be the utter extreme of those things and so unworthy. The holiness of God is also manifest in his contact with material things. We read in different places that the firmament, the heavens, reels, the mountains are shaken and melt, and all flesh trembles. So when God exercises his power, you will know that he's exercising his power. He doesn't do it quietly in a corner. It is indeed a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God when we sense and see this tremendous power that he exhibits. But then also in Exodus chapter, five, uh, chapter 20 verse 5, we read that he is a jealous God. That maybe causes us some problems today because we have a particular way in which we express the meaning of the word jealousy. But his jealous nature is not to be interpreted as covetous jealousness. Rather, it is the passion that he brings to all that he does. In other words, he is not jealous in the sense of wanting something that you or I have got. He is zealous that you or I have what he has got. Any foreign hand or God can only profane what is his and what is holy. And what God declares of his righteousness must therefore succeed as it is his single-mindedness in doing what is right. It has to reach its goal. It has to be as God has said it will be because he's not going to err, make mistakes. Again in Exodus chapter 20 verse 3. He is the only God. And because there is only one righteous way devoid of any alternatives, there can only be one God. There are not choices for us to make with whether we will serve this God or whether we will serve that God. There is only the one God. So to choose other than for God is to choose a life apart from God. And understandably, his passion is aroused when he sees the possibility of self-delusion and self-destruction in one that he loves. We can see, as we said in the Sabbath school this morning, why Jesus wept. When he saw what might have been, but what was in fact happening instead of what should have been. The aroused passion desires to turn erring mankind back to the righteous way. And not least, and it may sound very obvious, God is not man. 
And we need to remember this, especially when we expect God to act as we would act. There are all sorts of circumstances where we act in a particular way, and we expect God to be like us instead of us being like God. We expect him to do the things that we would do in those kind of circumstances. But his reasoning and logic does not follow the ignorant and biased judgments of humankind. As the source of creative power, God is supernatural. He's above all of those things. Not that God exercises his power as a distant megalomaniac, quite the contrary. He is the epitome of tenderness, solicitude and care. Sufficient for him to weep at the death of Lazarus or weep over Jerusalem or weep over the sins of individuals as he sees them. No human artist or sculptor could make an image of such a being embracing all of his attributes, qualities or virtues. Hence his prohibition of idols and images. I've often said that I don't like to watch historical dramas in film because if we do that we forget the circumstances and we attach a picture of the individuals who are acting in our minds and that may detract us from the story. And it's the same here. Who could make or draw a picture or paint a picture? Who could sculpt something that would portray all of the characteristics of God as we know him and as he is revealed in the scripture? We can't. But any endeavor to do so might push somebody in one direction or another instead of focusing on what God is. So though not a man, God is able and does reveal himself through man and his reactions. God reproduces himself within us so that we are his images. And we should be open to that changing, to that leading in our lives so that we can be made in his image. And God always surpasses us and always in the way that we least expect. Because once again we bring our humanity to it and we think that this should go this way or it should go that way. And God says, I've got something else for you. This is the way we're going. And he moves in a different direction. And in order that man might more fully understand God, man gives God other names. And the list is endless and we will not be considering them now. That's a study just in itself. But a common belief in the Mediterranean world is that a god must be properly called by name in order to invoke his or her presence. There is a very strong idea that calling a name produces the individual. And a number of the uh, Egyptian pharaohs, for example, when they came to power, one of the first things they would do would be to efface the names of the pharaoh that had gone before because they thought that if people read those names those pharaohs would live again and be some kind of uh, uh, problem to themselves so they either took the names out or made another little cartouche and put their own name in and it's this same idea that has contributed to the vast range of names that God has given in the scriptures this is understandable after all, I can be a son, husband, father, uncle, nephew, cousin, pastor, English, and yet still be the same person. And you could say the same for yourselves. We have so many different facets to who we are. 
and God then likewise. An equally important idea is that God is not only to be called by the particular quality desired, but by location. David, for example, looked to the hills from whence cometh his help. Jonah believed that he could run away from God's presence, as if God were a territorial God in some way. And these thoughts are not without foundation or significance. We find biblical writers use two important names for God as he is located in both the Old and the New Testaments. And those two titles were God Almighty and the Lord of Hosts. So we look at the first of these, God Almighty. The word Almighty is the Hebrew El Shaddai, which means the sufficient one, or we might say the self-sufficient one. In the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew is the Greek word Pantocrator, or all-powerful. And likewise, the Latin Vulgate uses the word omnipotens, easily recognizable as omnipotent or all-powerful. But Shaddai and a related root word, meaning mountains, brings the idea of God and mountain together. David therefore worships not the mountain, but the powerful God whose presence is seen on the mountain. And that does in fact happen so many times in the Old Testament. The most famous, of course, being Moses going up into the mountain and the uh, miraculous uh, giving of the commandments that he receives there. The use of the title Almighty is mainly patriarchal, the majority of texts being found in the book of Job. With one exception, the title appears again only in the book of Revelation for reasons that we will come back to in a moment. And so the second of these locative, as it were, titles is Lord of Hosts. And this title for God occurs nearly 300 times in the Old Testament, mainly in the prophetic books, and only twice in the New Testament in its original form, Sabaoth. Sabaoth has the primary meaning army, hence the Latin translations as Lord of Armies. But there are many passages where the title is used and armies are not implicated. The name first occurs in 1 Samuel chapter 1. If we turn across to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We can see the uh, word being used there <coughs> in verse uh, 3. And it says, And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So they went to a particular spot to sacrifice and worship unto the Lord of hosts. So the first name then occurs in connection with worship at the sanctuary in Shiloh and in the description of the ark in chapter 4, verse 4 of that same book. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. So again we have this title, Lord of hosts. A Greek translation of the scroll of Zechariah found at Qumran translates Lord of hosts as Lord of the powers of heaven, and in another place, in the same scroll, Almighty Lord. 
So the angelic hosts were symbolized by the golden cherubim which covered the ark and on which the Lord of hosts was enthroned. And so we come to the crux of that matter, if you will. The title Lord of hosts is the particular temple title for God. Moses told Pharaoh that God was calling his people to worship. Samuel records Elkanah coming to worship. Revelation's call is to worship. So worship is the center of the message of the Lord of hosts. We are called to worship. And we can see this very clearly in Psalm 24. If you turn to that uh, psalm. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So to answer Pharaoh's question, the one in whose name all the prophets speak was the Lord of all powers, seen and unseen, in the universe and in the heavens. But notice that the Lord of hosts is the sanctuary God. As God Almighty, he speaks from the sanctuary. It is the Lord of hosts who speaks to us in these last days from his seat in the Holy of Holies of the sanctuary. The sanctuary does not diminish in importance with the passing of time, but rather gains in importance as we see God enthroned there and as he calls us to worship him. So in answer to the question on the lips of modern atheists, who is the Lord? The sanctuary demonstrates a God who demands our worship and calls us into total obedience. God's call today mirrors his call to the Israel of old. God's message for his people today expresses his name. I am expresses his relation to us as he meets our needs. The Lord God of your fathers expresses our relation to him. God Almighty expresses his power from his sanctuary seat as Lord of hosts. It tells us where he is. The one in the midst of the sanctuary who is able to supply all your needs out of his infinite resources is the one who is calling each one of us to a life of holiness judged by the commandments contained in the mercy seat where he sits. Like Moses, we have to tell kings and people who this God is while well, there remains time to do so.
Why? Because now is the time for the sanctuary message. In Psalm 24, verse 6, we read, as we did, This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face. O God of Jacob. In verses 7 to 10, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And the question's asked again. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. But there's a work of preparation to do as we meet with this God who calls us. And we find that in those verses uh, through at uh, the beginning there, in verses 3 to 5. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And then it tells us the criteria for that. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So we're called to worship we're told what it is that we need to prepare to come into the presence of this Lord of hosts, the one who is going to draw all things to a close. And hence, that urge now to worship as we should. So may this be the experience of each one of us when we stand before the judgment seat of the Lord of hosts. May we approach with clean hands and, and a pure heart so that we may have a place in his eternal kingdom. I pray for his name's sake.